For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Hey, guys. Hey. Hey there. Hey. Peppy. <laughs> Real peppy. Uh, Max, who did you talk to this week? I talked to Andy Ward. Uh, Andy Ward is a book editor at Random House. Before that, he was an editor at GQ, and before that, he was an editor at Esquire. Uh, you may have heard his name over and over again on this podcast. He has been credited by like half the people we've had on as giving them their break or teaching them how to write or saving their ass in one way or another. I had no idea who he was until we did this podcast. Turns out that's kind of like how Andy Ward likes it. He does not really, he's like a behind the scenes guy. He's the man in the shadows. Yeah. Would enigma. you would you call me a behind the scenes guy? I would not. Uh, um, we got a sponsor this week, EA Sports FIFA 14. Thanks for the sponsorship. Uh, additionally, we got... Diny Letter. It's a simple, elegant way to send an email newsletter. It's from the good people at MailChimp. We thank them for the sponsorship. Here's uh, Max and Andy Ward. Hey, Andy Ward. Hey, Max. How you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. How are that, you? Thanks for um, having me to your office today. You're very welcome. It's an honor to have you here. It's an honor to be in your office. I feel like um, this is a very helpful place to be for an interview. There's like clues about you all over the place. <laughs> That's right. And you can get a book contract before you leave. <laughs> uh, and clues, uh, clues are a helpful thing with you because unlike everyone else that I've talked to for this thing, there, there is no like there's nothing about you on the internet. <laughs> I know nothing. I have like there's almost I'm not on Facebook. That's true. You're not on Facebook, yep. but you also don't have like many of the writers. We have talked about this like uh, canon that I could right. read back through, and you d- there's not even like basic bio stuff. I don't know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> man of mystery. You are a man of yeah, mystery. Uh, it's an uninteresting mystery. I'm, I'm afraid. I I got to tell you, I think maybe that's not the case. Right. Well, I guess let's just start at the beginning, or at least start where you started. You're now. At Random House, your title is? My title is Director of Nonfiction, uh, Editorial Director of Nonfiction. That's a good title. At the Random House imprint of the Random House Corporation. Okay. So, I didn't understand the last no. part, but we can just move any, on. Any book that has Random House on the spine, the yeah. little Random House logo, that's, that's where you. I work. Okay. Yep. That's basically just like the ward stamp. Ex- uh, well, I wouldn't go that far, but... You've been here for a couple of years. Before that, you were at GQ, and before GQ, you were at Esquire for like nine years? Seven years. Seven, seven years, years at G- Esquire. Seven years at GQ, seven years at Esquire, wow. and I started out after college in book publishing, actually. Really? Okay, well, that's where I wanted to start. Yep. So um, where'd you go to school? I went to school at Amherst College. Okay. Yep. Yeah, I went to Wesleyan. Oh, wow. But Little it, three. Yeah. Little three. I, if either of us were any good at sports, we could talk like rivalry yeah, stuff. Yeah, no, I didn't play any sports there. No, yeah. I, didn't, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't even go when other people played sports. Yeah, when you're not good enough to play sports uh, in the Little three school, yeah, you're uh, you're not a good athlete. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. So you came to New York, and, and I guess 
did you want to be an editor from the start? Did you want to be a writer? Um, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I think um, I didn't know what I wanted to be. Uh, I know I didn't. I I knew that I didn't want to go into uh, go to law school or go work at um, Goldman Sachs. Not that they were offering me jobs. Um, and I always, you know, I, I was an English major and uh, I loved reading. And you know, I'd always enjoyed writing, but I never really had the uh, the guts to to really think I could do it in a in a big way. Were you? I mean, like, were you writing? No, for, I was writing like, the college papers. papers. No, I wasn't actually. You know, I, w- I didn't write for the school paper, which is one of my great regrets. I didn't do it in high school either. I don't know. I think there was always something sort of holding me back. Were um, you like writing like, uh, you know, like were you journaling? Where, where were you <laughs> writing? <laughs> I was writing for classes. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I always took a lot of pleasure in that. And um, and also, you know, my father was a writer. He was a speech writer. Oh, um, really? Yeah. That. So uh, these, just, these are among the things that I didn't know. Yep. My father was Lloyd Benson's speechwriter. No shit. Um, for, for many years. And uh, so I, I grew up sort of, um, you know, thinking about writing in, in certain ways and, and sort of being learning to be hard on my own work. And, uh, you know, that was something that I felt like, okay, I don't have any real skills coming out of college. And um, books seemed like something that, hey, you know, I'm, uh, I like reading and maybe this is the job for me. Did your dad, uh, like, edit your school papers? <laughs> no, I wish. I wish. I have a um, friend who's, uh, whose dad was a magazine editor, and he used to edit all of her stuff for school, but he also, um, his, like, way he relaxed on the weekends was he, like, uh, took out a red pen and edited the Times. Like, oh he'd read God. the Sunday Times, the red pen, and I, mark it up. I can't tell you how close that cuts to home. Right there. <laughs> I mean, that is, like... It is a real. It is a. It is a serious act of will for me to read something without a pen in my hand. You just. You just start like your fingers start twitching. It's like I can't do it. I'm reading a novel in bed, and I'm like, ah, I gotta want to edit that sentence. It's so annoying. Um, But one thing, my dad. No, my dad did not edit my school papers. But one thing that he would do is sometimes he would read them, and uh, he would say he would read it, and he'd say, you know, I think this is pretty good. But um, what are you really trying to say here? Really, and. That is something that, I mean, I think any writer that I've worked with would tell you. I ask that question of them <laughs> all the time, and it's really like the essential question. So I thank my dad for that. All right. So you get out of school, and you're like, I like reading. I uh, don't like writing enough to show anyone my writing except my teachers. Um, so maybe maybe editing is the thing. So even from there, you had no aspirations of like writing the great American no. novel. You did God, not want no. to become a famous no, no, writer. No, no, no. My wife always laughs at me for saying like. That she, I'm the only person she knows who says, I don't have a novel in me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I'm, I'm aware of that. Um, but yeah, you know, I thought, I didn't know what book publishing was. I liked books and I thought it would be, uh, you know, I could sort of find my way. And um, it turned out I, I, I didn't love it when I got there. Um, really? Yeah. It was. Uh, well, how'd you get the job? I got the job. I went to, so before I came to New York, I went to this four or five week program up in. Um, up in Massachusetts at that time, it was in Boston. It was the Radcliffe Publishing Course, which is now the Columbia Publishing Course. And um, you know, it's just like a very—it's a brief summer summer uh, class where you, you you basically develop some fluency in the um, language of publishing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not it's like a, a crash course. Yeah, it's not a graduate program, really. Yeah. It's just, you know, and then they help you—they help place you in jobs. So I got a job at Little Brown and Company, um, which was a Boston firm that had recently moved to New York. This is in the uh, mid-90s. Um, and I ended up there as an editorial assistant. 
were you like did you have a vision of where you wanted to go did you did you know the kind of stuff you wanted to be editing um you know not really um i knew what i liked to read but um you know i took a job with some with the person who offered me the job first so <laughs> i didn't really you know he worked the my first boss worked on books that um you know looking back are not they weren't really my area of interest but that that didn't really matter to me at that what point what kind of books were they um uh, a lot of spiritual books um yeah, I'm looking around your office. There's not a lot of new agey stuff. There no, is a no. there is a 40 of old English, but there there's is. no. That was for my 40th birthday for my assistant. So <laughs> I'm kind of disappointed you haven't drank it yet. It's been there for a year. <laughs> um, but yeah, not his books were not really um, necessarily up my alley. But I thought um, you know it'd be an opportunity to learn the business and and to sort of you know make your move from there. And then, how long before you realized okay maybe the book publishing at least right now is not is not what I want to be doing yeah I lasted two years really yeah and you know what I little brown is a great company and um, were um, you actively editing stuff then no and that's that was the big issue for me I think I you know I realized pretty quickly like I wanted to do creative things I did want to write a little bit I wanted to be editing editing things I would read magazines and think you know it would be fun to do that stuff yeah, It'd be fun to interview somebody or to write, you know, 300 words about some remote control car, whatever the hell it is, <laughs> you know, that was appealing to me because it felt like, you know, you're, you're pushing yourself and you're stretching in ways that you haven't done that before. Was the schedule of magazines appealing too? Yeah, it was because, uh, you know, I didn't know anything about magazines either though, really. I just knew that, um, you know, there was, there was, there seemed to be more opportunity there to, to do creative work. Yeah. Um, and so that's why I did it. I took a job. I was at Little Brown for two years, and I took a job, um, a freelance job, freelance researcher job. That was I was promised three months of work. <laughs> I was hired to be the researcher for the Dubious Achievements Awards issue uh, at Esquire. At Esquire, it was a three month job, and um, that was that was it. So I left a full time job and took that. And uh, at the end of those three months, it turned into a full time job. And what were you? I mean, like. Uh, what were you looking for? Where did you see opportunities when you were, when, well, what were you, 20? I was 24. 24 yeah. when you took that. Like, So the first three months at Esquire, this job consisted of me sitting in a cubicle. This is pre-internet days, by the way. <laughs> That's how old I am. Um, I sat in a cubicle with stacks of newspapers and magazines from the entire year. Like, 300 New York posts stacked up on my desk. <laughs> every, you know, Newsweek, every Time magazine, and I went through all of these publications and I cut out um funny news items. <laughs> and then I took them and I You're like basically them. doing the internet by hand. I know. And I <laughs> copied them into this master file. It was unbelievable. At one point, you know, the thing got up to like I think I remember 40,000 words. <laughs> 40,000 words of, like, dubious achievements were the material that I wrote into, um, you know, two or three sentence sort of um, summaries Yeah, with, with page references so we could always go back and get the original item. But that's what I did for three months. That's oh all God. I did. And uh, and I loved it. And But, I mean, like, you very quickly started, like, moving up the masthead there. And I, and I guess I'm just wondering, like, how did you do that? Well, that like, was what, what were you looking for? The reason I was given a, a chance at Esquire was because um, there was a change in leadership at that magazine about about a year after I got there, a little less. Um, Ed Kozner, who had been the editor when I was hired, um, left, and David Granger came in. Mm -hmm. David was um, executive editor at GQ at the time, 
So he's brought in big promotion for him. He's running, you know, the sort of the uh, he's put in charge of the enemy camp, Esquire magazine, right. and um, he brought a lot of editors with him. And um, there was a huge turnover at the magazine, and I think I st- I stuck around because I was, you know, not I was below the radar, and you're just the guy in the cubicle, yeah, reading like, the post. You're not going to get rid of that guy, right? <laughs> um, so I, you know, I sat around. I remember he showed up, and um, he was forty at the time, um, and he just had a lot of energy, and um, he loved writing, and I remember he had been there for about three weeks, and he walked by my cubicle one day. And um, he just, you know, poked his head over the top of the little cubicle wall, and he goes, who should we be publishing in this magazine? Who should be writing for us? And I remember I was reading um, Naked by David Sedaris at this time, which had just come out. And uh, I said, I think David Sedaris should be writing for this magazine. And David goes, David Granger goes, um, call him up. It's like, call him up? <laughs> Call up David Sedaris. I don't know him. <laughs> He's like, call him up. Ask him what he wants to do. So I got his phone number from a friend of a friend, you know, and and I called him up, and you know, I remember the conversation. I just said, "Hi, you know, I'm Andy Ward. I'm calling from Esquire Magazine, and I'm I'm loving your book, and I was wondering if you ever want to do any magazine stories. Is there a story that you're dying to write? That's what I said. Is there a story that you're dying to write? And uh, and David said, um, yeah, I've always wanted to go work in a morgue for a while. I was like, work in a morgue? What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> work in a morgue? Okay. Um, well, let me let me go talk to my boss about that, and I'll get back to you. So I go into David's uh, Granger's office, and I said, you know, I talked to David Sedaris, <laughs> and he wants to work in a morgue. And David said, all right, do it. It's it, – w- and you so you basically just went from like the dubious achievements like collation job to editing Sedaris. Um, you know there was there was six months of sort of uh, editorial assistant work in there, but um, but yeah, and you know that story we assigned that story at seven thousand words. I had no idea what I was doing, <laughs> no idea. Um, but you know, I also David Granger helped me. I remember um, you know when drafts of that story came in and. Um, first of all, David Sedaris had never written, had never gone out and done a story like that before. Yeah. Um, so in the, like, walk, walk us through that. Like, so like you've got Sedaris never done this before. Yep. You've never done it before. It's like the idea <laughs> off the top of his yeah. head. Like what, are you guys talking all the time? Are yeah, you, he's like, calling me from the, he's were you like letting on that you didn't know what the fuck was going no, on? No, no, no. You know, one thing I learned that was, that was, uh, that was helpful. I think going forward for me was, you know, David Sears would call from the road. He would check in, you know, every day or two, and he'd say, God, man, you wouldn't believe what I saw today. You know, they found this this person came in, you know, and blah, 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 some some hideous story about, you know, when something had, horrible had happened to this person. And, um, you know, when he describes it, it's funny in, in some ways. And I would go into David Granger's office, and I would sort of tell him what David was getting. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I could see David Granger he was buying into the story, you know, and I was, um, just by sort of communicating the, my, my passion for it and, and sort of, you know, the, the best of what David was giving me from the road. Um, you know, David Granger was, you know, sort of, he was becoming very aware that this story was happening and he was becoming interested in it. And I think, you know, that's a, that was a real lesson for me too, is that you have to, um, 
that keeping these things on the radar, on the boss's radar, yeah. is a really huge part of that job. If your job is to get pieces in the magazine, um, you have to always keep them sort of front and center and, and, and you know, be given little tidbits here and there to keep people interested. All right, so I have a, um, a confession to make, which is yep. that um, because there was so little I could, like, research about you, yep. I just emailed a whole bunch of people who you have edited yeah. and ask them for like things I should ask you oh, or things God. that they would, they yep. would, they would want to know. <clears throat> and I'm, su- I'm I should sweat. I should have said, we probably will say this in the intro, but I should have said the reason that we, I wanted to talk to you was because your name keeps coming up in these interviews all the time. Right. And you know, Sean Flynn and Jean Marie Laskus and Joel Lovell again and again, like your name keeps coming up as this sort of like a uh, sort of guiding light for these folks. So I wanted to talk to you one thing, well, two things that you just mentioned came up again and again when people sort of like sent me back these these thoughts about you. And one of them was how great a like um, reporting partner you are and how like you're on the phone with people all the time while they're working on stories. The other one was about how good you were at like protecting them from the boss. Right. Um, and I want to talk about that too. But talk a little bit about that, like how what your philosophy is. You've got people who are in the morgue and you're 24 and you yep. don't know what's going on or who are in war zones or who are doing massive stories about tragedy or, 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 or you know, sex yep. tourism or whatever. Uh-huh. And you're checking in with them all the time. What's your process there? What's your like philosophy of how you handle that? <clears throat> um, you know, I think that's, that's a valuable process for, for two reasons for me as an editor. Um, one is purely selfish. These guys, you know they they do interesting shit. They really they live lives that um, I don't. And when they're out reporting these things, it's just I love talking to them about what they're what they're seeing and what they're learning. And you know it's just like it's a real opportunity for me to to participate vicariously in what they're doing. <laughs> right. Um, and I love that. Um, that's the best part. And you know another reason why I think it's uh, you know it's, it's sort of essential to the process is that. Those conversations, um, if they're happening regularly enough um, and they're in depth enough, you're helping, you're, you're shaping that story sort of before it even gets written. You know, you're talking about what it all means before that person delivers a draft. Um, and you're figuring out um, what's interesting and what's not. Right. You know, and what, what we need to start, what we lead with. You know, and it's all these things are coming out of those conversations. Otherwise, you know, I think if you're not sort of um, deeply involved from the very beginning, it's a it's a very different proposition. How do those relationships take shape? How do you get a writer to trust you that way? Because these letters I got back are just like they. I mean, they're just like the most effusive things in the world, man. It's right. just a love letter after <laughs> love letter, and well, that's nice. That's not normally what you hear about right. editors. Well, I mean. I remember, it's interesting that you say that because I remember um, very early in, you know, starting out, hearing writers complain about editors. It was like very knee-jerk sort of eye-rolling, you know, this perception of editors as being harmful to the process. And I I remember thinking, like, I I don't want anybody to say that about me as an editor. You know, I want, that's, it doesn't seem like it has to be that way. so I think, you know, how you gain that trust, uh, it's a hard thing to, um, you know, quantify. I think the way that I try to do it is um, by caring, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's true, though. You have to you have to 
taking those call, having those conversations is part of the process. That's, mm-hmm. that's caring. Um, when the draft comes in, um, you know, you, if you don't care about every word and every sentence in that piece, um, I think writers pick up on that. Um, and, um, and always, you know, always recognizing that, um, for me, I'm married to a writer. Almost all of my friends are writers. Um, I, I feel like I have a decent awareness of how hard writing is. It's really, really, really hard. And, um, if you respect that, I think, um, I think writers respond to it. Um, and as an editor, if you lose sight of that, I think you run into trouble. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to uh, pause things for just a second and tell you a little bit more about our sponsor. It's EA Sports FIFA 14, uh, the grossly addictive soccer video game that we've been talking about all month on the podcast. Every week, they've given us a couple of games to give away to you, the listeners, and every week we have gotten way more emails than we have games. So EA has given us five more, five final copies of FIFA 14 to give away to you. Uh, it's pretty easy to get one. Just send me an email, max at longform.org. Put FIFA 14 in the subject line. If you're one of the first five people who emails, I will go to the post office. I will stick a game in the mail and will arrive at your doorstep for free. It's a pretty good deal. Uh, thanks very much to EA for sponsoring us. It's been uh, super fun. Okay, let's get back to Andy. Do you think that it helped that you didn't have aspirations of doing the same kind of writing? Yeah, I do. I do, actually. And I think... Um I always made made a made an effort to work with people. I mean, I was lucky to work with people who were all much better at what they did than <laughs> I could be. I'm serious. I mean, that's I think to be, you know, sort of a secret of good editing is working with people who um are really good at what they do. And so your job becomes not so much I'm going to go in and rewrite their pieces or stomp all over their writing. It becomes um you know, pointing out um structural issues or um, figuring out what the real point of a story is or just highlighting sentences and paragraphs that aren't clear yet or don't make sense or could be better. You know, there was so much of that, particularly in in the magazine world when I'd reached a real level of comfort with these writers where, you know, the comments were no longer, you know, um, Jean-Marie, I think maybe we should, um, maybe it's worth thinking about cutting this sentence or whatever. I could just put a comment in that was like, this sentence isn't working. Right. You know, cut. (laughs) <laughs> and and the, that's the, that's what happens when you get a level of trust. I think is that um, it, the process becomes a lot cleaner and more simple. And they, I think, writers um, begin to sense that you know you have their best interests at heart, which you know you should. I generally have not had a lot of um, really testy moments with writers. I think, but I think a lot of that is because I do ultimately feel like I, I'll say my piece. And I'll say it forcefully, and I'll you know marshal whatever logic I can <laughs> I can sort of muster in my my uh, my small head. But um, if they ultimately choose not to follow it, it's their book or it's their magazine article, and their name is on it, not mine. So I always try to keep that in mind. Okay, so let's 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 go back. So okay. so you're twenty what twenty four twenty five? Yeah, yeah, yeah twenty twenty four or twenty five. Um, and so, yeah, that story, um, the first story I signed uh, ended up, you know, running in the magazine. And um, I think from there, David just sort of opened the door for me. 
Um, and so, uh, I've, what happened when you got that, like for the first draft of that morgue story? It was hard. It was very, very, very hard. And I needed David, David Granger's help to sort of, um, figure out what it needed. Cause I didn't know, I didn't know, you know? And, uh, was it, uh, was it tough to ask for that help? No, it wasn't. He offered too. You really? Know? Yeah. He was, you know, yeah, he was a great, he was a great, uh, mentor to me. And I really, looking back on it, I owe him everything because it'd be very easy for him to not stop at my cubicle and ask that question when he did. So, um, and editorially I learned a lot from him. I think, you know, that was the, that was the only story I remember that he sort of co-edited with me. I mm-hmm. mean, I remember him sort of sending me notes that were embedded in the text that he had put in there and thinking, Oh, that's, <laughs> you know, that's how you, that's how you sort of that's the language I need to be using. Uh-huh. Or that's how you say that, you know? Um, and it was, it was all very, um, you know, even the criticisms are delivered in a way that don't feel um, crushing or mm-hmm. negative or, um, you know, it's this, it's this thing where you, you need to lift people up as you're also pushing them to do better. All right. So, so you've discovered David Zedaris. You are... Uh Moving, skyrocketing up the mass head. <laughs> Your ego is clearly just growing <laughs> out of control. Just busting through the walls yeah, of my cubicle. Yeah, I mean, just every, everywhere you look, right. yeah, no cubicle wall can yep. hold the size of your Cannot ego. Cannot be contained. I'm interested in that era and how like, your confidence grew as an editor and uh, and and what that how that manifested itself. Like, how are you getting better as an editor, what 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 were the mistakes you were making when you were younger that you know you start you sort of like started to correct? Yeah, I think you. I think the more you you know, this is like anything else, the more you do it, the more I think confident you become, and and I think the more confident you become as an editor, the the better you become as an editor, if that makes sense. Because I think writers, um, you know, I don't want to speak for for writers, but I think they um, respond to. Um, to confidence, and and if 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 you're projecting ambivalence as an editor, um, that's not that <laughs> doesn't make people feel secure. Yeah, um, you know, I think you want to if you have an idea about a lead that's not it's not working. Um, I don't think you pose that necessarily as a question. You say, "Here's what I think you know we could do," and you just sort of lay it out. And you, whether they want to follow that or not is up to them. But you have you have to you have to have a vision for it, you know? And I think that only comes through doing it a lot. Yeah. You can't just be a critic basically. Right. Exactly. Um, and you know, that was, you know, when you're working at a magazine, you're editing a lot of copy and, you know, pretty, pretty early on I was, you know, editing the sports column every month and I had, you know, um, either sort of brought on writers or, you know, um, inherited some staff writers and, you know, they were under contract for four stories a year or whatever. And, you know, that's 30,000 words each. And those things just start happening. And there's no, you just have to sort of do it. So let's talk about that uh, a little bit. Do you have like a, do you have like a standard organizing principle for how you edit? Do you have like a, how is your, I guess, how is your your style, actual like line editing? How has that developed? Um, You know what I, uh, my style, I would say is, uh, Okay, so if I'm working in a magazine and I get a draft of a story, um, I would typically read that two or three times. Um, and each time through, I'm making little notes in the margin with my pencil. 
Um, and so by the third time I read that thing, there's a lot of notes in those margins. Um, and at, at that point, I, you know, I go to the computer and I start to type my notes into the manuscript. And as I'm doing that, I'm editing my own notes as well, right? So I'm sort of, it's a hard thing to describe, but like a, a picture starts to emerge for me as I'm typing all these notes in, um, which the notes tend to be probably more micro than, than macro notes. But a macro picture sort of emerges as I'm doing this. I start to say, oh, I, you know, certain things, sort of themes keep popping up that I'm going to, you know, make notes about um, for the for the larger edit. Um, so I put all those notes into the to the manuscript and then I go up to the top of the uh, to the page and I'm just sort of lay out the macro the macro edit there saying, you know, um, you always start with this is going to be good. But, yeah. <laughs> This is going to be really good, <laughs> uh, but and you know you just—that's where you sort of lay out, um, you know, thematically what you think the story really needs to be about. Mm-hmm. And um, it doesn't matter if it's a five thousand word story or a hundred and twenty thousand word book. You know, you get lost in the middle of these things, yeah. and often you just need. Um, I think it's it's helpful to have somebody, you know, come in and look at it with a with a cold eye and to say, we've sort of lost. We lost the way here. Maybe this is what it's really about. Is that what you see, like the sort of like core responsibility or core like job of being an editor is just helping a writer find the story? Part of it. Part of it. Um, but, you know, that's one part of it. Uh, there's no, I think the core responsibilities are. Like what's, your, what's your definition of your job? My def- the definition of my job is to help, help people um, produce the best work that they can. Um, and you know, there's a, there's a broader macro element to that, which is like, yeah, what's the story about getting back to that question again? But there's also like every, I have a note in almost every sentence, you know, in any manuscript, whether it's a magazine or a book, Really, which is like, is it, you know, it could be something as simple as, is this the right word right here? Or like this sentence syntax, this feels like it could be better. You know, I don't know. It's a little clunky. Um, it's unclear. What are you really trying to say here? All that kind of stuff all through. You know, you have to constantly sort of, um, you can't let down the guard. Um, and I, you know, as an editor, I feel like sometimes you have to put something down because you're, you know, you lose that sort of um, vigilance. Um, and then I pick it back up again where I'm focused and I can really like bear down on these sentences. And um, and it can be, I think, tiring for an author um, to get a manuscript back that has a million of these little <laughs> questions and and uh but to get back to what you were saying earlier i mean it it makes it pretty plainly obvious that you care yeah i mean i think i do think that's part of it and you know i do that two or three times <laughs> so it's a it's a, i think in some ways it can feel like a endless process but also it's so gratifying to see each time through things get stronger and clearer and better um so that's that's like the ultimate reward so you're, when you're at esquire you you start editing more stuff and you're and part of your job, I mean, part of any magazine editor's job is to be looking for new writers, looking for new voices to right. bring into the magazine. Mm-hmm. Who were some of the people that you brought in and what, what were you looking for back then? At, at Esquire? Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, well, I'm interested in how, why you left Esquire and went to GQ, but just generally kind of who were the folks you were bringing in? What, what were you looking for? Because, you know, we had Sean Flynn on a couple of weeks ago and, you know, you sort of like plucked him out of Boston Magazine. Yep. What, you know, what was it about Sean? What were what were you looking for in these kind of like 
uh, writers who are not yet on like a national stage? What, what was? I mean, that's what I was looking for. Writers who are not. I wanted to. I you know maybe some of it was um, like unconsciously. I was. It's less intimidating to work with people who aren't. You know, when you're 25 or 26 and people are established and have big names, um, that's a different proposition, you know, than reaching out to somebody who's, you know, kicking ass at Boston Magazine and saying, hey, like, I'm from Esquire and, you know, there's this true crime piece that we want to do and, you know, your stuff is, your crime reporting is awesome and what do you think? Do you want to give this a shot? Um, and, you know, for, for a guy like Sean, like, that was it was an opportunity for me to work with somebody who I thought was like had a ton of potential and was going to do great magazine work. And it was, I think an opportunity for Sean that Esquire was a bigger platform for him and, and he'd get more space and more money and all that, (laughs) you know I mean? Yeah. It's, it it sort of benefits both sides. Um, but yeah, Sean was one. Will Hilton was another who is, uh, now at the New York times magazine. Um, and he just sent a cold letter to, uh, I mean, I still have the letter. Really? Yep. Um, he sent it to David Granger and David just sent it on to me saying like, you know, take a look, whatever. Do you remember the letter? What was the letter? It was a, it was a long letter. It was like a page long about why he should be writing for Esquire magazine. Really? Yeah. Uh, I still have it at home. Didn't Um, Jones, didn't there like a great Jones origin story? Chris Jones. Yeah. Chris Jones showed up, um, unannounced in my, in my office with a box of donuts. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I remember the lobby called up, you know, like some guy down here with a box of donuts wants to see you. And I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> Who is it? You know, like, what's going to I'm going to get shot. You know, what is this? <laughs> and uh, and Chris came up and, um, you know, he just he, we sat and we talked for a while. He brought I had written this piece going backtrack a little bit. I had written a piece for Esquire magazine about my love of the toasted coconut donut from Dunkin Donuts, which I felt like was the best donut. So Chris, of course, brings toasted coconut donuts. And, uh, you know, we sit and we talk, and um, he's clearly like a smart, ambitious guy. I really liked him. Um, and, you know, he he just wanted to meet. But after that, we began an email correspondence. Um, and he was a you know sports reporter at the National Post at that time and hadn't done a lot of long-form stuff. Um, but his emails were amazing. <laughs> his emails were so good. And uh, our Esquire sports columnist at that time was Charles Pierce, who's, you know, legendary sports writer. Amazing. Um, And Charlie, uh, you know, stepped back from the magazine a little bit at one point, and um, he was going to the Boston Globe. And uh, I said to David Granger, why don't we try this guy Chris Jones on a column? And and David said, all right, um, yeah, we can do that. Tell him he can do one column for no money. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I said, well, I'll have about 500 bucks. He was like, okay. So, uh, yeah, Chris called Chris up. He did a column on Barry Zito. And then from that from that moment on, he just became like Esquire sports guy. And that was all because, you know, we met over donuts. And then there was just like a line of aspiring magazine writers bringing you donuts. It never happened again. It never happened again. I can't believe no one else did that. No, no one else did it. I think Chris, uh, it started and ended with him, but that's a good place. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's a good, that's a good list. The donut move. Um, but yeah, well, I worked with Jean Marie Laskus at Esquire. I started working with her there and, um, and then also worked with her at GQ and she's, you know, you know, Jean Marie, she is, there's, you know, there's nobody better. She's working with people like that. It was like, it it can't it's 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 it's, it's fantastic. Uh, okay, so seven years at Esquire. Yep. 
and then and then why why the leap what happened so uh yeah jim nelson who's the editor of gq now he um he got the job top job at gq and i can't remember the year 2002 or 2003 um and he the man he replaced was art cooper who had had that job for 25 years and um it was a huge deal when art Art stepped down. Um, he was a legend in the business, and um, Jim was somebody I'd never met, but only heard you know great things about as a just a super smart guy. He'd been in Harper's, and um, somebody that I knew just sort of watching that magazine from afar that worked with a lot of good writers, um, and we had sort of very similar tastes. And um, I think the day he got that job, or the day after he got that job, he called me at my desk at Esquire, and um, you know he just said, "Look." Uh, I'm I'm stepping in here and I want to do I want to do great stuff and um I want to know if you want to help me do that. And that was like the hardest. I mean, I just thinking about that moment leaving Esquire was one of the harder professional moments of my, you know, of my life. Um because David had been so good to me and I loved all the people there so much and um all the writers that I was working with. It was just like you know, it was an ideal situation. So why the hell do you walk away from an ideal situation, right? Yeah. Um, but also I felt like, um, you know, I was always going to be, I was always going to be like the 24-year-old guy who, um, who you know, David gave a chance to. And um, GQ was sort of a, I think, you know, was, I guess looking back, it was an opportunity to, um, to get out from under that a little bit too and sort of just be my own guy at GQ and try to see what I could do there. And how do you think, I mean, so you spent seven years at Esquire and seven years at GQ. How, yep. how, like, how are those two eras different? What was different about the way that you were editing and, and the way that you were thinking about the work at that um, point? You know, I think at GQ, it was, um, I think, you know, my role at the magazine was a little bit different. Um, you know, what it gradually it sort of it morphed into editing um, a lot of the, the longer form stuff, but also... Um, helping sort of um, oversee a lot of the younger editors and top edit their stories, which is really something that I loved to do in a lot of ways because that's essentially what David had done for me on that first story, which is like helping people learn how to talk to writers and edit and invest themselves in these things that, you know, you know, you don't have to be fully invested as an editor, but, you know, it's my belief that if you are, things turn out a lot better. So it was a nice chance to sort of try to instill some of that in people <laughs> right. too, you know? Right. It seems like uh, part of what people loved about working with you or love about working with you is that you would um, run defense for them yep. with like the with the boss. And like uh, Flynn kept talking about how on that on the fire story, like he had nothing. He couldn't get anyone. Yeah. He couldn't get anyone. You kept telling Granger, like, he's got it. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, that's, I, I see that as a huge part of the job, huge part of the job. Um, I mean, as an editor, I always felt like my, my, you know, you ask about like, you know, the main, the core responsibility beyond making, helping somebody make a story better. It's getting their story in the magazine. That was a huge thing for me. Um, there's nothing more demoralizing than to a writer than writing a story that never makes it into the magazine or that just constantly gets held or pushed or, um, so I was definitely like, you know, I wanted the stories that I worked on to get into the magazine. Um, and part of that is, um, you know, you're an advocate 
you are an advocate internally for this for the writers and the stories that you're working on. If you're not, um, you know, then something's wrong. And I, you know, I, I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, but um, when when you know my bosses would ask, sort of inquire as to the quality of a draft that had come in or you know the status of a story. I never wanted to say that a story was in trouble, <laughs> right? You know, I never wanted to say that because as soon as you say that, man, it's like the deck is suddenly stacked against you. Um, and I have to trust. And with the nice thing about working with a group of writers like this for so long is I did trust. I knew, I knew that if we were given enough time, we could make these stories good. Like that was not a question. So I didn't really feel bad about, um, you know, if a story wasn't in yet, I didn't right. outright lie, but it's like, yeah, you don't ever, if you telegraph um, that you're worried, then the, then the editor in chief is going to be worried too. And that's, you know, it's just not, it doesn't help the process. Um, so you had seven years at, at, uh, at GQ and then four years ago, 2009. Yeah. Four years ago. Exactly. Four years ago. Another leap. Another leap. Yeah. Um, which, you know, felt, it felt like a logical leap to me. I mean, I'd started again, like it started in book publishing all those years ago and ultimately I always felt like it was a place I might end up again. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, there's the, basically the only thing that is, that does exist about you on the internet right. is a story in the New York observer from when you left, which includes Nelson's Jim Nelson's <laughs> full yeah. memo the to the staff, yeah. which is, about the most like glowing memo I've ever seen in my life. It's like a, yeah, <clears throat> it's a it's a yeah. pretty hefty monument, <laughs> man. I I'm like I'm most tempted to like read it aloud. Uh, to no, you. no, don't, don't. Now, the fact that that's even I remember when that um, appeared online. I just you know wanted to crawl under my desk. I Why? Like, I, I don't know. I don't know. It just felt like personal and yeah. I guess in some ways I am like private in that way but um i don't know just it just didn't feel like something i wanted out there even though it was incredibly nice you know jim was again like david a great boss and i should say about gq um you know in a lot of ways working at esquire and gq as an editor there wasn't a huge difference in my day-to-day life i was assigning and editing you know the long stories in the magazine and i was you know i had, I had a little more like sort of oversight duty at gq but at GQ Magazine, I can't think of a single time that they told me I couldn't do a story. Really? Which is like, <clears throat> you know, to think about Isn't that. Isn't that kind of because you were the boss? No, no, <laughs> it wasn't. I think Connie asked, you know, they support this stuff in a huge way. And um, they trust the editors to do it. And, um, you know, if it's going to be really complicated or really expensive, um, they were generally just there to, to do it. And that was unbelievable. You know, looking back at some of the stuff we were able to do. And yeah, what are, what are the most what are those most, sort of most memorable stories from that era? What are the ones that you? Still I mean, think I think about? a good example of that would be, um, you know, we, the novelist Richard Powers. <clears throat> um, this was, I think, in probably two thousand seven. Um, there was a company in Cambridge whose name it's, escapes me now, that was um, that had just sort of pioneered this genome mapping technology, um, which existed. You know. Genome mapping existed uh, before this, but they were trying to sort of democratize it. They were trying to popularize it. And they were offering um, full genome scans um, for a price that was 
still very high, like in the six figures. Um, and, um, I wanted to get a writer to submit to this test and have this <laughs> full genome scanned. Eight people in the world had had their genome scanned at this point. So, um, I, you know, I called, uh, Rick Powers and who writes beautifully about science and is just like, I think a, a, a genius and asked him if I could arrange for this to happen, if we could get this company to, you know, to do this for you, yeah. um, would you want to write that story? And he was like, you know, he thought about it for a week. <laughs> he came back. He doesn't do a lot of this stuff. I don't think he'd ever done a magazine story before. And he got back to me. He's like, yeah, if you can make it happen, I'll do it. And, um, and we did it. He became the ninth person in the world who had ever had his genome scan. And they paid the six figure. No, they didn't. We, you know, we got a, a greatly reduced price. But you know, between what you, you know, the what you pay a writer and you do all right. this stuff, it's like that is not. That's not small stuff, and um, it'd be very easy not to do that story because ultimately, like, yeah, what is it adding to the to the bottom line of the magazine, right? right. Like, it's not like people are going out to the newsstand to buy that necessarily. They did it because. It seemed like a great story to do, and Rick Powers is a great writer, and um, and they they trust people to do it. So. Well, that's something I, re- I I really wanted to talk to you about. So, in that incredibly effusive memo, Nelson's like, uh, "But this is the job he always wanted, going to be a book editor. Yep. That's that's the job that you always wanted." But there's this. I'm interested in in all kinds of things about the differences between editing books and editing magazine articles. One of the really fundamental ones is that any story that you're assigning for GQ is not necessarily designed to like get people to run out and buy it on the newsstand. Four years after you left, that equation is even more sort of like off the table at this point. It's just about making the magazine better. Yep. It's not necessarily the thing that's going to add much to the bottom line. It's not going to do a lot for sales. It's just about making the magazine better in this kind of ephemeral way. Right. Uh, now you're like, you are in the hit business. Right, like right. You, like the bottom line is hugely important yep. to to how you're doing. Has that how how I guess how's that adjustment been, and and uh, does it make you think differently about the kind of stuff you want to do? I mean, that's a really really good question, <clears throat> and I think about this constantly because I feel like um, it sounds weird to say, but in some ways, my editorial life, working at a glossy men's magazine was in some ways like a pure, what you think of as like pure, pure editorial existence. That may have been a pure edi- editorial existence in that I was free to work on stuff with with these writers um, that really didn't, as you say, um, you know, it didn't cause people to go out and buy GQ magazine or Esquire magazine because these stories were in them necessarily. Like I think it helps the product overall and people, you know, um, they respect that these things are in there, but ultimately, you know, it's, um, the person on the cover and, and, you know, GQ, like fashion's a huge part of that magazine success and fashion and celebrity. And there are all these other things that make it a, a really good magazine, but you're not selling the magazine based on that alone. Um, and so I was just in this nice little pocket there where I could design these things and get these writers to, um, to come aboard and, you know, we'd produce these 10,000 word stories and like nobody would mess with them and they were just, 
we just put them out there and you know yeah, that it's, was, it's it's like a it's like a you're like a like a it's like a fantasy like you're I know, like, it's it like, is. it's almost like you it's like fantasy there's someone who who sent something out about like uh who would you draft in like a fantasy journalism draft yep. but that's kind of what you're doing I know, yeah, it like, was it really tons was. of money <laughs> you could pick out whatever writers you want like it I'm really interested was. in that story you know, you know be good yeah. Rick Powers would do I know. that I know it's crazy yeah it's crazy and it's, no one was ever like how did it do no nobody knew <laughs> how did it do I don't know how did it do I don't know. We don't know who was reading it. Right. We don't know. Like, did five people go buy it? Because so there was off, a, like letters to the George editor is the metric that matters. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's uh, it was incredibly, uh, you know, editorially it was just really rewarding. Um, and um, you know, the book world is, yeah, you're right. It's totally different. It's um, you know, the book is the thing itself, and people have to. First of all, you have to get people to know every month at GQ magazine, a million people get that magazine, right? Every month, automatically, a million people, <laughs> right? Zero people get a book automatically, zero. So, you know, it's a question of, yeah, when you're acquiring projects, like, is this something that, I mean, ultimately, the first thing I really care about is, is this something that I, that I feel attached to in some ways, the writing of a certain level or that that it speaks to me and I want to work with this writer. Um, but yeah, you know, the book is the magazine. Like there is no umbrella brand. Like the book you have, first of all, you have to get people to pay attention to it. And then you have to get them to go into a store or go online and pay 28 bucks for it. And that's like a whole different proposition. Yeah. It's you know? a different equation. Yeah. And you know, it's um, in some ways and not only that, you know, getting back to what I was saying before, like, did anybody read the stories in the magazine? I have no idea. I know exactly how many people read the book or at least bought the book. Right. So there's like a bottom line to this business that was actually very scary to me for a long time because in magazines, you know, I didn't have that. So the idea of like being, you know, having a, having a um, profit and loss statement based on the, here are the books you signed up seven books this year and here's how much you paid for them. And here's how much, they sold like that's a scary thing when you haven't done that before right so it's like uh we know exactly how much this made and this is exactly how much i make yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah um but you know what i've i've i'm i'm liking that part of the business too it's a different way of thinking about ideas and um and uh you know it's it definitely took a while to adjust to that because part of my brain still operates in on magazine mode a lot of the time it's yeah. Like, yeah it's a good story we should do it how else is it different? What, how is how is editing a book different than editing a magazine story? I mean, it's you know the this the gestation period I think is the, is also a huge adjustment, um, and you know I think the books that I work on I would say the typical from you know acquisition the moment of acquisition to publication is uh, you know very often three years and that's on a pretty quick schedule. Yeah. Um, so it's a different way of thinking about ideas. Um, do you, you know, do you miss the like rush of a monthly publication schedule? You know, it's funny because my 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 job at those magazines wasn't so much um, to be in the sort of uh, you know the like the pop cultural stuff that was sort of needed to be happening right then, um, which I always liked. I, I one thing about magazines that I you know sort of um, you know didn't mind getting away from. I guess I would say is that. I always felt there was sort of a what I called like the, a tyranny of relevance. Like everything always had to be. You needed I, your peg. Yeah, and like why? Like the emotional re, the emotional relevance of a story was always sort of um, more important to me. 
um, which is, you know, not a, probably a great business model for a magazine, but, um, in books, it is much more about that. I think, um, there are obviously projects that you want to do quickly and that have news value, but a lot of what I'm working on, um, you know, it doesn't have that. It doesn't have that. It needs to either, um, you know, it needs to survive on its own and it can, it can do that in three years or four years. You know, it doesn't often doesn't matter. Has the, have the nuts and bolts editing changed at all? No, not at all. Nope. It's, uh, you know, I find editing a 10,000 word magazine story versus editing a 120,000 word book. It's, it's the same thing, really. I mean, at, at a certain, once you reach a certain length, I feel like, you know, you're still, you're still telling a story, right? You just got a story has a beginning, a middle and an end. And a long, long form piece of journalism has that. And a, a book has that as well. So that part of it hasn't been a huge adjustment. Um, you know, I I find that I edit um, I edit books a, a lot, much much the same way I edited magazine stories, which is um, piece chapter by chapter. We sort of build it from the very beginning. So um, I'm I'm editing everything as we go along, rather than having a huge manuscript dropped on my desk. Yeah. You know, two years after acquiring it. Did you have like a, a book editor mentor in the same way that you had these? magazine editing and mentors i mean not or the same way I did think. you get thrown into this and you were like I you kind of get thrown into it I'm yeah just, i'm yeah. just gonna figure this out yeah yeah um but again it's not you're still to edit it's just editing it's not really any different um yeah. there's a lot that is different around it um in terms of once the editing's done and you know you gotta you gotta publicize the book and you gotta market the book and you gotta put a cover on the book and you know that's all that was all new and that takes a while to sort of I mean, I'm still learning it. It's been four years. You know, there's a lot that I don't know. So, the part of it that it sounds like you kind of intrinsically sort of just understood from the start was that the role of an editor is to be a writer's partner, and you're trying to do this thing together. And and you know what you said earlier about like the job is about trying to sort of like make the work as good as it can be right. seems true. And I think that your writers, some of the notes almost felt like postmortems are like people talking about uh like an ex you know yeah, that had yeah. that tone it was like this really like wistful it's so over the top and it's so effusive and the other thing that everyone kept saying was like andy is a nice guy right he's like a good guy well that's that's the nicest thing they could say about me you know well i guess the thing i'm like how do you make it as a nice guy in like new york city media <laughs> like it I feel like nice guys aren't don't don't make it. Like nice people don't, <laughs> don't seem think, like I they mean, make it. I don't it. think that. I don't know. I don't think that's. I don't think that's you don't necessarily think that's true? true. But I mean, also, um, yeah, I don't know. It's hard to. It's hard to to say anything intelligent about that. I think you know, if you're an editor, it's such a terrible question. Like it's running, hard to say. Well, I'm not running. It's like I'm running a uh, a major media corporation here. I'm an, I'm a book editor in an office in New York, and um, you know, I think if you treat writers respectfully and they um, and they create work that's, um, you know, affecting and lasting, um, then, and those, those books or magazine articles do well, then, um, you know, in a lot of ways, editor, an editor will benefit from, that's the weird thing about being an editor. You ultimately are sort of, um, rising on the work of other people too. So that's what, it's very weird, for, um, to talk about this as though I'm responsible for it all. You know what I mean? Um, these guys are doing the work and, um, you know, I'm helping them, I'm helping them get there, but it's ultimately, it's about them, not about me. So, um, you know, if you, 
if you get promoted or if you do well. Um, yeah, I mean, I think to not realize that you owe that a lot of that to them is, uh, you know, that's that's the problem. Well, I think you should know that I think uh, they all feel like they owe you <laughs> a lot. Well, you know, it's a very, um, again, I think I used the marriage metaphor before, but it is very much like that. You know, these are really close, long-time relationships. And, you know, handing in a draft to somebody, no matter how many times you do it, you hand in a draft to somebody or you hand it, you know, often what we did um, in magazines is you would hand in, you know, the first, you know, rough half of your story because we were under deadline pressure or whatever. I needed the thing and, okay, I'm going to send you the first half of it. It's not ready yet. The moment when you send that, it is like, it's like walking naked into the room, you know? It's like, and it's, that's not an easy thing, you know? And so, um you know, you bond, you bond over that. It's like you do that enough times and it's, uh, you just reach a certain level of trust and comfort with that person where, um, you know, I think it's natural that the relationship is one that is, you know, that's deep. Um, and as an editor, when that person walks naked into the room (laughs) and you gotta, you gotta tell them they look great. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so Andy, thanks very much for taking the time. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Lauren Kirchner. Our intern is Gavin Jenkins. Gavin is a student at Pitt Writers. That's the graduate writing department at the University of Pittsburgh. Longtime supporter of Long Forms, and we appreciate that. Same goes for EA and Tiny Letter for sponsoring this week's episode. Thanks also to Andy Ward for letting me come and do that interview in his office. Uh, which was pretty cool. There were things in his office that I was not allowed to ask about, so I just kind of stared at them while I asked him about other things, which may have been weird. Uh, We will be back next week. If, in the meantime, you would like to go and rate us on iTunes or leave us a review, uh, I will not dissuade you from doing that. Feel free to go and rate us on iTunes. We'll be back next week. Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. Claude 3 from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point of the price-performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skill and speed. And Haiku is the fastest and lowest cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who use Anthropic to navigate this new frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude, C-L-A-U-D-E, today. Jumpstart your genius with Claude 3 by Anthropic.